Hey y'all, welcome to Detoxicity, a show about progressive masculinity. I'm the show's host and producer, Mike Joseph. If you enjoy what you're hearing on the show, I kindly ask that you smash the subscribe button on whichever platform you're using to listen. Also, please don't hesitate to rate, comment, and recommend. If you have someone in your life that could get something out of the conversations we're having here, tell them about the show. Also, feel free to follow me on social media. I'm Detox Pod Guy on Instagram and Tiz Mike Joseph, that is T I S Mike Joseph on Twitter. You can even email me, detoxpod at gmail.com. Don't hesitate to reach out if you know someone who might be interested in being interviewed on the show or if you have any other ideas or constructive criticism. Most importantly, I thank you very much for listening. Stay well. When this episode's guest was introduced to me a decade or so ago as Juggalo Bob, I had reservations. Those reservations ultimately said more about my own preconceived notions than it did about anything in regards to Bob Lugo. We all contain multitudes and Bob is not only a proud member of the Insane Clown Posse fan club still, but he's a music industry executive and marketer, he's a brain trauma survivor, and he's someone who appears to have completely grasped the concept of personal evolution. From hard partier to spiritually awakened work in progress, I'm proud to welcome Bob to the Detoxicity Podcast. This particular conversation was a long time coming. It hit me in a lot of different ways, and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed participating in it. Cool. So my name is Bob Lugow. Um, I'm 36 years old, so just dealing with being closer to 40 now. That's okay. I'm a lifelong cat lover, metalhead, music fan, and uh, I, I like to think of myself as a unique individual. I would say, but uh, I, You're a pretty I come unique from... individual, Bob. Thank you. <laughs> I, for, I, mean, I forgot. I, mean, I say that with lots of love. <laughs> and I should also say that Prince is obviously a big part of my identity. I would say I currently work at. Sony Music for the catalog with Legacy Recordings. So I am working with Prince now on the music of Prince and Michael Jackson, Judas Priest, ACDC, Miles Davis, Nas, a lot of my favorite artists of all time. It's definitely a bit of a dream come true there. Nice. And before that, I was running all the promo at Relapse Records, a very renowned heavy metal independent label. Been around for 30 years. My favorite record label of all time. I was there for about 11 years running the the promo department for about half of that. And then I also own my own record label called Brutal Panda Records, which is a metal punk indie label. I also manage a band called Ruby the Hatchet, who are like a bit of Deep Purple meets Fleetwood Mac, all shameless plugs here. Plug uh, plug away, bro. (laughs) And that's my professional life. I'm from uh, New Jersey which is also a part of my identity because anyone who's from New Jersey is likely going to be very proud of that fact too, since we have to spend our whole lives defending the, the state, the armpit of America, you know, baby, it, baby it gives brother. us thick skin, huge music person, big animal lover, uh, lover of life, lover of people, and try to be a positive, outgoing, happy person, even in the face of adversity. Nice. So when I first met you, you were introduced to me as Juggalo Bob. <laughs> and I was like, okay, who is this weird dude? Because you, I've never actually in my life met someone who was sincerely into the Insane Clown Posse. So you're the first, first and only actually 
juggalo that I've ever been in contact with, which I mean, and we can get into that at some point, but music is such a huge, huge part of your life. Has it always been that way? Absolutely. Yeah. From, from very early times. And, you know, ICP have been a big part of that journey as well. I, I would say really one of the reasons I got into music marketing and, and the business side of it was from paying attention to what ICP were doing too. I was such a hardcore juggalo in high school buying everything that they put out from the hockey jerseys to the charms to the action figures to juggalo condoms even though I was a virgin oh lord Bob wait do you still have juggalo memorabilia I do I I have a lot I I gave a lot away recently but I do have a lot and I would say it was also a community to belong to, even though I wasn't an outcast or anything. I really appreciated this world that they created where they accepted everybody, no matter what you looked like, what your income was, how much you weighed, the type of person you were. Like the most of the fans were outcasts and and felt like this was maybe the one place that they could belong. And I was really drawn to that too, just that whole like family aspect of of ICP and the Dark Carnival and their whole mythology that they created. And it is music with a message too. There's there's an underlying message around what they're doing, which is about being anti-racist, like anti-wife beater, anti-oppression, and they're about acceptance. And I found that to be a message that really resonated with me. When I was seeking out something shocking, I was seeking out the most shocking music I could find. And that was after Great Malenko was pulled from all the shelves of the record stores. I just heard as a 13-year-old kid, hey, this is supposed to be the most controversial band in America. I was like, I've got to check that out, you know? And I would say they definitely influenced me in terms of just like getting into the business side of things too, because I was just so much in awe of the world that they created where it was like part wrestling, part, you know, showmanship, right. their, their live show. I mean, you're getting covered in gallons of cheap soda. I mean, what could be more fun than that? And you play dress up too. It, it was magic when I was a kid. And, you know, I've always felt that with music back to your question. Some of my earliest memories is listening to Elvis with my mom as a kid, because that was her favorite artist. And then also browsing through her record collection too, original copies of Sgt. Pepper's and Led Zeppelin IV and Big Brother and the Holding Company's Cheap Thrills and John Mellencamp and all these cool records. We didn't have a working record player, but I was fascinated by the artwork and the packaging and the imagery. And then my mom played me a lot of the, you know, rock and roll that she was into. And the first three tapes that I had that were were my parents or my mom specifically that really shaped my whole musical life and also I think in many ways my personal life were Michael Jackson's Thriller, ZZ Top's Greatest Hits, and Queen's Greatest Hits. So you've got pop music, you've got rock music, and then you've got Queen, who are a combination of both of those, but also many other styles. And you also have an artist like ZZ Top, who's very much a manly, you know, masculine band, huge beards. I was blown away by their beards. And I used to put on a fake beard and play air guitar for my mom with my stuffed orangutan. Like I pretended to be (laughs) a member of ZZ Top, which she loved. And- Is there a video of this, Bob? 
there's photos. There are photos, I, which I found recently. I even gave the orangutan a fake beard too. Um, wow. So, you know, we both looked like the members. You were invested. That, absolutely, yeah. It was like, you know, I, I just felt drawn to it very much. And, and then also Michael Jackson, Queen, you know, listening to music that was very danceable and very, you know, pop oriented, but also like, feminine in some ways too. Both of those artists specifically, I think we're really touching on all areas of, of their personality, of musical styles, of appealing to every type of fan base too. And it really shaped my musical tastes because I liked the heavy stuff. I loved like Queen's Stone Cold Crazy and of course Easy Top's LaGrange. But then I loved The Girl Is Mine and you know, like you're who the only to... person I know who will admit to liking The Girl Is Mine. <laughs> not even sure I admit to liking that song. I do get shit from some people for, for saying that, too. You know, it was a lead single, though. It was. Right? It yeah. was. Yeah. I don't so know. Some thought it was a good idea. Yeah, I, I was listening to an episode, an old episode of American Top 40, and uh, The Girl Is Mine came on, and I, I'm singing along with it, and I'm like, Mike, damn it. Like, you, you hate this song, but every word, like, it's, it's you know... It's like second nature to me. It's very strange. But uh, that's a pretty diverse array of, of musical influences, at least. Was How did that sort of translate into the messages that you were getting growing up? What was young Bob like? Well, I was definitely a very outgoing kid who was definitely a bit of a mama's boy, I would say. And I have Aww. an older brother as well. So we were very close. I think we had the largest stuffed animal collection in like the entire zip code. We created an entire community of stuffed animals in our bedroom. And that was uh, like a very joyful time. I, I had a great ideal childhood. Grew up 15 minutes from Philadelphia. Both my parents worked in the city and encouraged my brother and I to go as once we were old enough and allowed when that wasn't really the common experience around here too. A lot of people's parents were terrified to go into Philadelphia. And it was usually my mom who would be the one driving myself and my friends or my brother and my friends into the city. And that was something that really had a big impact on both me and my brother was just being encouraged to experience everything in life, like not being afraid to get outside of your comfort zone. It applies to people, it applies to music, it applies to really every aspect of my life too, is like, I'm open to anything. I've always felt that way. You know, if it exists, I want to check it out and see if, if it's something that I may be interested in. And as a kid being into music, once I established that I was into it, I was just all in. And once I was allowed to start buying CDs, too, or I guess when I was old enough to make my own money, then I was just going bananas with it, buying every possible <laughs> CD that I could get and wanting to explore every genre of music too. I remember obviously going down the, the heavy metal rabbit hole and it was about trying to get into, hear the most extreme music possible, not just sonically, but aesthetically too. And also hip hop as well. When I discovered that genre, it was also like, you know, my God, I have so much to learn here. And I felt like I was a student of music from a very young age. You know, I used to play bass guitar. I felt like 
each genre that I discovered, I wanted to learn everything about it. And, and it was interesting because my brother was, was, and still is like quite the academic. He speaks about eight languages. He lives in Norway. He's a citizen there. He was like the valedictorian of our high school. One of the smartest people I've ever met. He went to Harvard and Brown and it was kind of intimidating too, having as my older brother, when traditionally, you know, some, some families or schools or people just want to reward that the traditional style of, of achievement, which could be sports trophies or academic achievement or things like that. When he may have been studying an atlas or, or a geography book or something, and I'd be studying the insert of, you know, a black metal album (laughs) or something, or reading all the lyrics to a Tupac album and just trying to understand music in every possible way. Mom and my dad were totally cool with it. So I'm very grateful for that. And my grandparents were musicians too. So we have music in in the family, but I I think if I didn't have that support, because I saw it happen with a lot of friends too, where their parents didn't support their musical journey and it ended up existing in like an unhealthy manner where I had friends who had to hide their metal CDs from their parents too, who just weren't allowed to go to concerts on a school night maybe, or just in general, because their parents were too afraid of everything. It it all came down to control through fear too, which was a very real thing growing up because Columbine happened when we were in high school. And and here I am, the kid wearing the t-shirts of the bands that are getting blamed for the the massacres too. And ICP were one of them, Marilyn Manson, Rammstein, Nine Inch Nails. I was into all that stuff. And I was very lucky that my school, my parents and my friends didn't judge me for liking that stuff and wearing those t-shirts. I mean, I was actually class president and homecoming king too. And in my senior yearbook, I'm wearing an insane clown posse jersey as the class president too. That's not that common from what I understand. I, I feel like that is really, really uncommon. It's listening to this is really interesting. You and your brother had like the successful team happening, like, you know, got one on one side with like the academics and then with the popularity and the kind of like music thing. It's kind of the opposite of the story that I hear a lot of times where you guys had a good upbringing, had parents who were supportive and grew up in a really healthy fashion. Yeah, I mean, it's something I'm, I'm really grateful for every day. I think about it a lot and I'm living at home now too. I'm taking care of my dad. So I, I moved home to be with him and especially with my brother living in another country. We're a very close family and I feel like I'm so grateful for the experience I had from my parents because we lost my mom in October of last year to cancer. My condolences. Uh, yeah, thank you. And I feel like I need to give back to them, to both my parents, by helping to take care of my dad now, who's disabled. And so it wasn't even a question for me to come up with that decision to move here, especially with, I was in New York City and, and my brother being in, in Oslo, it was just like, this is something that I need to give back to my parents. Like everything's cyclical too, or, or comes full circle, right? So it's like, if they were able to give me such an amazing childhood and experience and trust me and love me unconditionally and all the things that people often take for granted 
in this life or never even get the chance to experience, which right. is just like, so tragic. I feel like I'd be doing a disservice to myself and to others if I wasn't giving that back. You know, they, that my parents probably sacrificed so much as parents to give to my brother and I. And I think as I've gotten older, family has really informed so much of my decisions. But if I reflect, I can look back and see how it, it always has too. But the fact that my mom allowed me to listen to really some of the most extreme music around again and watch horror movies and like really fucked up stuff too <laughs> in a time that it, it was being vilified by right. the mainstream media and always has rock music or any kind of subversive music hip-hop anything yeah, is always right. but it takes a wise and I think very conscientious person to understand that you can separate the art from the music and to teach that to a kid too. What was so important was the trust that my mom put in me saying, hey, if you're going to a Slipknot show or, you know, a ICP show in the city, I trust you to not do balloons in the parking lot, which was all the rage back then. Or What, what were people doing with balloons? It was uh, nitrous oxide. You'd, people would just be double fisting balloons in parking lots <laughs> at shows. At least in Philly, that was the thing here all the time. And there was also gangs going to shows, hardcore gangs. I'd witness brass knuckle fights and huge rumbles and some scary, really scary stuff. But my parents trusted me not to get involved in that too. And, and that trust was so important to me that I didn't want to break because I felt like is if I'm no longer allowed to go to concerts, then what do I have? Right. In, in my life right now too. When you're a kid, you know, that's one of the most important things too. And I think I avoided drugs and alcohol for a long time as a result of, of just having like good, wholesome fun at concerts and in the music scene and going into Philly and buying death metal albums at the relapse store that existed in Philadelphia too. And too often adults will look at something like that and just judge, oh, this, this music looks terrible. You must be a bad kid as a result of that. And I saw that happen so much at one ICP Juggalo gathering because I went to six of them. And I swear this whole thing won't be about ICP. You but... traveled to Michigan to go to the gathering six times? Michigan, Illinois, Ohio. Yeah, I think those are the only states. My mom actually took me one year too, which was kind of amazing. I'm glad she didn't go to the show. She was just hanging out in downtown Peoria, but okay. she was, I didn't want her at the show. I, 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 no one wants their mom at a show. Listen to it. Yeah. But I'll never forget my friend and I were walking in a hotel at one point and these two airline pilots, uh, you know, fresh off of a flight and all their fancy pilot gear are walking down the hallway and my friend and I are walking down too. And we were maybe 16 or 17 and these grown men look us dead in the eye and say, hey, you guys are the reason Columbine happened. What? Yeah. And we were just like, fuck you, motherfucker. But then <laughs> it hit me afterwards. I was like, what kind of adult would say something like that Seriously? to a child? And that's really helped me keep an open mind and keep me, you know, not wanting to get old like that in the sense that old mentally. I have so many peers my age who are like, oh, new music's terrible these days or the younger generations fucking everything up. I'm like, you, 
you sound like someone you probably don't want to sound like right now. Or I've had people who say how much they hate Billie Eilish or Post Malone and my first two artists I love dearly. And I, my first question is always, well, have you heard them before? And then usually the answer is no. no right. And then I'm like, have you seen their music videos? Have you really looked or listened to these things that you're spending all of your energy hating on? And the answer is no. And, and then they start to think about things a little differently too. Like, huh, why am I such a curmudgeon too? Just, you know, putting all this negativity on others. It and, is and that was the thing with me too. It was like so much negativity thrown at that fan base, at that band, at for someone I've never met to, to judge me and tell me who I am based on the shirt that I'm wearing. And now they're classified as a gang by the FBI too. <laughs> so stupid. Like, so so idiotic. Um, and I have a tattoo of them. So if I were arrested, I could be classified as a gang member too, which is insane. And, no pun intended. No pun intended. <laughs> and just that whole experience really taught me a lot too about, I think, just like, how an outlook on life and I've recognized my privilege too I've recognized it a lot more as I've gotten older being a white suburban guy from a good family and uh, middle class and everything but seeing a lot of the other fans of the music that I was into whether it's punk or metal or ICP or hip-hop and seeing how people didn't have anything else in their life too and this was all they had too and then for someone to tear that away from them too or to judge them based on the one thing that, that they really have in their life, I feel like is just such a cowardly, ignorant act to do. It is really ignorant and really shitty. And, you know, I'm guilty of, I'm guilty of being on both sides of that, you know, but it, it, you really do make a good point that for some of these kids who are in the middle of nowhere or they're lonely or, or whatever it is, this is what they have to this is their lifeboat and whether it's for me or not for me i can't be the judge of that you know what i'm saying people will need to do what they need to do to stay afloat and particularly if it's art look if it's a tv show or a movie or a record that i don't like then i've been trying to to consciously change my view on stuff like that from this sucks to maybe the same for me and i think making that simple switch from a critical, from a negatively critical viewpoint to saying, hey, this ain't my jam, but I respect that it's yours. It does volumes. Absolutely. That's perfectly said. And, and it's really even verbalizing that too, both to yourself and maybe to the person you're talking to is just turning something negative into something maybe not quite positive, but at least a more positive experience for everyone right. involved too. That's a mental exercise that we need to do more of in all areas of life to be like, you know what? I'm not into that religion maybe, but I respect it and <laughs> that's okay. Instead of hating on it when you don't know anything about it or same with racism or so many of the problems plaguing homophobia, you know, all these problems plaguing society too. It's like people who spend so much energy on the hatred of something too, nobody is benefiting from that. Least the person expending that energy too. Right, right. It's easier to live and let live than it is to hate. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think I learned so much of that through music and even through some of my own experiences. Cause when I was young and in high school, 
as probably everyone in high school would be, you do have that you hate things or things oh, that yeah. aren't cool or that you think it belongs to you, that the a certain band or artist, because back in the day when record stores were where you discover your music or shows. <laughs> remember uh, those? Remember record stores? <laughs> I do. Quite fondly. You felt like you owned something or you felt much closer to it. It was a more intimate relationship. And I remember really having a hard time when even a band like Slipknot blew up and all these popular kids in my school where I was like, they're not supposed to listen to Slipknot. That's for me and my friends. And then it hit me. I actually wrote a letter to Corey Taylor, the singer of Slipknot, or an email when they were not a big band. And I was mad that the music video for Wait and Bleed well, they took the harsh vocals out for MTV. They just released a new edit. It was not on the album with only clean singing. And which for those who may not know, clean singing in the metal world means actually singing, singing as, opposed as opposed to, to screaming. Harsh singing, yeah. Like screaming, yeah. And I was livid. I'll never forget it. I was like 13 or 14 and I was pissed. I was like, how dare you do that to me? This is my music and you are changing it to reach the seventh grade girls that that shouldn't be listening to Slipknot. And he wrote back and I'll never forget it. I, I think I have the email somewhere. And he, he understood my position because I've been down since the beginning. And, but he's like, hey, first of all, the record company did that without our permission. And I was like, that's probably now, yeah, that's probably the case. Right. But he was also like, look, it's not, this music isn't just for you. He's like, this music is for anybody who likes it. And that's what our message is. We're about acceptance. We're about you know, getting our music out to everybody. It's aggressive. It's challenging, but it's meant for like, those are emotions that everyone's going to feel. And this is an experience that everyone is entitled to. Nobody is the gatekeeper or can say, Hey, you have the right to do this and you don't. And I, I loved how much, even as like a 13 or 14 year old, how blunt and honest he was and how raw the response was where he knew I was a fan and he addressed it but I probably struck a nerve with him because maybe you know other you also people... probably weren't the only person sending him that kind of, of email yeah absolutely I really appreciated his response and it changed a lot in in how I viewed things not just with music but really in terms of who am I to tell somebody else what they can or can't do in anything in life. It was a really important lesson and one that I appreciate to this day because when it comes from a person that you respect so much and idolize and when you're a kid too, a musician up on stage and many of us who are obsessed with music, there's nothing greater than that. They're almost inhuman in yeah. a way, they're like God. And to hear that, for him to bring me down a notch too and just like lift you know, the cloud out of, from over my head and be like, no, he's like, I live in my grandma's house. I'm passed on car bills. He's like, we're not, and I called him a sellout. That was the worst term. And he's like, trust me, I don't have any money at all. This is about the art. This is about the music. This is about the message. And it was a really powerful moment for me where I started really not trying to expend my energy on judgment because we spend so much time as a society really do. judging ourselves and then each other. And then when we're really at the point where we judge so much that we judge people's band t-shirt, even at a show, we're like, that guy's a fucking poser. You yeah. know? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. 
Or like, oh, he's wearing a Black Album Metallica shirt and not a Ride the Lightning one. What's their deal? Do you think that Hetfield or Lars cares when you got into Metallica? They care that you're giving them your money. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and you're listening to their music. I, I shouldn't sound that jaded about it, but you know, <laughs> like whatever you like. And as long as it ain't hurting nobody, you should be entitled to like what you like without the fear of judgment from anybody. Absolutely. And, and now that I've been in the industry for so long, I felt like I, I loved turning people who never listened to the type of music that I was working on onto it too. And just changing people's minds about something that they had previously judged. And it was really interesting to experience in the metal world, how much my mom or other adults or my normie friends too, would be like, <laughs> would be like, wow, like these tattooed metal people are some of the nicest, most down to earth people I've ever met. And I was like, well, maybe you should remove the wow from that and start to just think, oh, this is just another person. They choose to look differently or maybe they're into different art but just stop judging too Dude, and was, it was nice to see those barriers be broken down firsthand that was, a, that was a thing of mine when i first started working in the capacity that i work in now i've been at my current job now for 16 years and working with metal labels it was always like oh there's there are these big scary looking motherfuckers with beards and long hair and tattoos and all this aggression and then they give you the biggest hugs of like anybody in the world. And they're so gentle. Yeah, absolutely. Not everybody, of course, right. just like any group, there's always going to be bad seeds or whatever, but no, you're absolutely right. And metal taught me so much about struggling or learning my own prejudices too. I'll never forget when I was about maybe 16 or 17 in high school at some point, this band Arch Enemy from Sweden, I was really into uh, like melodic death metal band. They had fired their singer and they got a new singer and it was a woman and I had never listened to a female screamer before it wasn't really a thing as much back then so that was maybe 20 years ago or around then and it was kind of a big deal you know the press was talking about it and back then there was no YouTube so you couldn't hear her until the record came out right. and I remember myself and some friends being like oh fuck this band now like I'm not gonna listen to <laughs> A woman singing. We're all up on our high horse thinking that we know everything and being completely misogynistic. And then I was in a record store not long after it came out and something was playing and I was like, man, this is killer. And I asked the clerk, what is this? And that's the new arch enemy. And then right then pff, my mind explodes. <laughs> I was like, well, lesson learned. There I was wrong again. And, and, and I try to learn from those moments right away instead of continuing down that path too where i was like all of a sudden hey you know what maybe women should be in metal and can be in metal too and then i was very honored to work at relapse where we we really had a lot of female artists across the roster we had one of the first trans female artists on on the the label to or in metal period we had many bands with females and as singers or in the band where we didn't market it as such because you would see a lot of it being such a male dominated industry or scene uh and genre you would see some labels or bands marketed as like female fronted metal hottest chicks in metal all those things and that was something we were very conscious of not wanting to do because 
it wasn't just our decision. It was because our artists didn't want to do it. And that was really important to do, to be like, no, they're just musicians. It doesn't matter what the gender is at all. And being in the, the scene for so long, it's amazing to see how much progress has been made over the years too, where when I was in high school going to a metal or hardcore show, women were at the shows, but there was definitely not a safe place at all. And whether that was the venue or security or the crowd or the bands, no one was looking out for each other. And so much of the music has been rooted in misogyny too, which is a struggle to have to reflect on that too. Why was it this way? Why are people drawn to this? Why are labels promoting this? Why is it still a thing? And it was really important for us and, and me personally and all the artists and bands we worked with, and not just artists with females in them too, but the, the male artists who were sick of this too and be like, hey, maybe we can do something about this and make this a more inclusive scene. And I'm really proud of that work that we did and the label still continues to do where it just tried to even the playing field a little bit and just really lift all voices and make it about metal and heavy music. And I think fans can then learn those lessons as well. The, the reason I probably didn't want to listen to Arch Enemy as a 16 year old with a female singer was because the media, the labels, everybody was just male dominated. Like this is for being tough. This is about being a man, being masculine. And I was a puny little kid who was definitely not masculine or a tough guy at all, but vicariously, I felt like I was getting my toughness and what I was supposed to be as a man through this scene, going into a mosh pit and you know risking life and limb next to a six foot five guy covered in tattoos when I'm 15 years old. For me, that was being a man, you know? And then I was like, I, I didn't think women belonged in this scene because that was kind of what you felt based on the lyrics that bands are promoting to, what you saw at shows where it's, it was a boys club with Arch Enemy being a specific example where all of a sudden something clicked where I was like, wait a minute, this is just as good as anything else. And it's almost cooler in a way because this woman's facing much more adversity from little shits like me. And that made me just want to change things instead. And there's still much work that needs to be a done. A lot of progress that needs to be made. You know? But at least I think people are on, on the right track and people of my generation are able to reflect on like the, the music that we grew up with too, because hip hop was very similar too. So, so much misogyny. Hip hop's always been a boys club. Hip hop, I mean, started out being casually misogynist and then became very overtly misogynist for a while and still kind of straddles the lines back and forth. But it's the same thing. Like you go to a hip hop show with very few exceptions, it's going to be an all dudes event and the environment isn't necessarily great for women, but you've got to make the realization, A, that music is for everybody and that B, there are as, you know, there are talented female rappers out there the same way there are talented male rappers out there. We're coming to a place slowly where the playing field is evening out a little bit, but yeah, there's still a long way to go with metal and hip hop, I think have always been kind of sonically polar opposites, but aesthetically very similar. Agree, for sure. Which, which makes sense why the fusion happens too, right. which, which yeah. you know, so, some is a lot better than others in yeah. terms of rap metal, but absolutely, I totally agree with that too. And they've, they've kind of faced similar battles. They're both 
rooted in subversion and and politics and outside of mainstream society. And then mainstream society is more like looking to catching, trying to catch up with them. Right. So when you're into things that are supposed to be away from the mainstream and that are supposed to be all about freedom of thought, freedom of expression, just freedom in general, which I think those two genres very specifically are about, it's even more disheartening when someone's not getting the message or when the artist is promoting something that goes against that, which is, you know, how I felt now, especially with a lot of the music I, I listened to when I was younger and still love, but maybe makes you cringe now because you're like, wait a minute, you get so much, you're almost there, but then you're still harboring on whether it's gay people or women or somebody, there's still somebody else that you're trying to bring down to. I still, I still, I struggle with that constantly where it's like, do I want to listen to this? I, I could think of a million different lyrics that are disrespectful towards women or disrespectful towards gay people or disrespect. Like, for example, when I, Ice Cube's Death Certificate is one of my favorite records, but there are parts of that record that are disgustingly hateful towards a variety of different groups of people. And it's really hard for me to reconcile the stuff that I'm jamming out to, to... I mean, I could pick five different songs with lyrics that are super cringy. And I, I haven't totally reconciled that yet. And even, look, as a not heterosexual male, I was listening to a Biggie record the other day and he says faggot and I'm rapping right along with him and I'm conscious of it, but there's an internal struggle happening there. And there is a, a fair amount of stuff that I can't listen to anymore. Yeah. I can imagine. And it's your right to do as the listener. I try to, to look at, like, give the artist the benefit of the doubt and, and often say, well, well, look, times were different too. Right. You, progress can't exist unless you had moments that may be cringeworthy now right. too. Like that's and, what progress And we all is. have those moments. We Absolutely. all have pasts. We all have histories. Nobody is perfect. You know, the whole purpose I think of life is to evolve and in order to evolve, you have to have shit that needs correcting. We all have shit that needs correcting. 100%. If I was recording albums when I was 17 or 18, I would not be happy about the lyrics that I'd be putting on paper, too. Mm -hmm. and a lot of these artists that have broken out or become or, or part of our fabric of our lives that are huge, like Biggie or uh, Cannibal Corpse or you, you name Rolling right. Stones, full of questionable lyrics, too. So many artists. They started when they were younger too. And oftentimes, I guess your growth can be stunted in a way when you become a huge celebrity at a younger age. So instead of blaming the artist for what they said, especially if they're not around anymore, it's like maybe try to contextualize it too. Some might be worse than the others. So it's up to you as an individual to reconcile with that. Yeah, you just got to consider perspective. Yeah. I So when I met you, one thing that I found out very quickly about you, other than the fact that you were a juggalo, was that you were a partier, a, a, a prodigious partier. And, <laughs> and you are no longer a prodigious partier. And I know that there were some things that happened that kind of put a hard stop to that. 
Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I got to give you props for, I've never heard prodigious before. <laughs> that's good. I, I think that's accurate. And I appreciate that. What I definitely would have taken is a huge compliment probably <laughs> in the past. And yeah, I've definitely gone through a lot of changes the past few years that have that have been very know, like profound in a way. I got a brain tumor about six years ago, maybe almost six. It'll be six in September. And that that was definitely a big moment for me that it changed a lot in my life personally. For one, I was at risk of losing all my hearing. And because it was the tumor was attached to part of my brain that affects my hearing. And I could potentially be paralyzed too, is what the doctors told me. So I was like, okay, that's uh, some serious news right there. And especially being someone whose life and career has revolved around music, music yeah. my hearing was the thing I was scared of the most. So, you know, at that point I was living in New York City and, you know, I'd only been there for maybe a year or so. And obviously being in the music industry and the heavy metal industry, it is a big party atmosphere. You're at festivals, you're at shows, at bands staying at our place all the time because they can't afford hotels and the label can't afford hotels. So it's just a constant party. And when that happened, it was a big wake up call for me in many ways because my body was telling me that something was wrong. I found out about it because I was definitely drinking a lot. And I remember starting to feel hungover for the first time because I was like blessed slash cursed with the ability to never really get hungover in my teens and twenties. Like I never felt it. And then right after I turned 30, I started feeling it for the first time. And I was like, maybe it's because I'm 30 now and some magic switch went off. Right. And then I'd wake up in the morning and just I'd see stars or I was just feeling like sick, very sick. And that went on for maybe a couple months. And then one morning after having like two beers the night before, which was not much, for me, I, I threw up a bunch and I hadn't thrown up in such a long time. I don't think I ever really threw up from drinking. So I knew something was wrong. And and I was glad to actually be at the point, I think, because my dad has had so many illnesses and health problems over the years that I knew I had to get it checked out. And then I went, saw a doctor and, and they had me get an MRI and I and they told me I had a brain tumor. So that was obviously, you know, getting that at 30, that news was was a lot to take in. And long story short, I got three opinions, saw a few doctors, my mom, my family was helping me out a lot. Thankfully, I had such a great support system and decided to get the surgery done in Philadelphia so I could be at home instead of in Bushwick in an apartment attached to a mayonnaise factory, which was not the most quiet, (laughs) (laughs) uh, relaxing place to recover from brain surgery. Oh, Uh, man. We also had a, ch- a chicken slaughterhouse across the street from us. What and, the hell? You know, New York uh, slaughterhouses that exist? Yeah. At that, and if you opened our living room window, it was a factory. I'm not talking an inch of space on the ground between two buildings. I'm saying it was actually a factory. Holy shit. <laughs> it was wild. So I got the surgery done. I, I decided to stop drinking for a few months leading up to it. And then I went to a wedding and had the one last hurrah, basically, because I was like, I don't know what's going to happen when I wake up. And then I got the surgery and I woke up and uh, was definitely, couldn't hear much. And I was cross-eyed and (laughs) my head hurt. 
as you can imagine. Yes. And I'll never forget waking up in a room with other people who just come out of surgery and hearing conversations was the most painful thing like I've ever experienced, one of the most painful things. And then they let me recover and, and I watched Fresh Prince of Bel-Air for a while, which was cool. And then <laughs> for about two weeks, I couldn't hear out of my right ear at all. I was still cross-eyed and I could hear water moving around my head, my skull, just like fluid. It was swish all around. Huh. I was like, what the hell is this? And I knew something was off, but I didn't quite know what. And then when I'd lean over, I'd have fluid coming out of my nose whenever I leaned over and it smelled. It was like a metallic smell to it. And then called the doctor, told him about it. And he's like, you need to come in like now. And the problem was the Pope was in Philadelphia for the first time <laughs> visiting the U.S. So you couldn't get in the city at all. Like it was on lockdown. And so I had to wait a couple more days. And then I go in, see the doctor. And he's basically like, we need to put you under emergency surgery again, because you've got spinal fluid leaking out of your nose. And that's why you're cross-eyed. And that's why you can't hear is they didn't patch up the hole properly. Holy shit. So, you know, I was just like, all right, here we go. Let's do it. Like, what, what am I going to say? No, right. you know, <laughs> I clearly need the surgery. So then I went under a second surgery and uh, that did it. It got the fluid out of my head and I could see, but I, I did lose about 20% of my hearing, I would say in, in my right ear. And that's something that, that I still struggle with for sure. It's hard just not being able to, when you're listening on headphones or just listening to music or at a concert, I'm just much more sensitive to sounds too. And a few months after that, too, after the surgery and I recovered and, you know, I, I gave it my all. I put so much energy and, and resolve into recovering from this and just facing what at the time was probably one of the most challenging things I'd done in my life. And then I kind of started getting back to my old ways. Like, I remember when my doctor said, yeah, you can have a beer or two, but then that turned into more for sure. And at first it was like, have one beer that felt great. And then I started getting back into it. I thought I was more recovered than I was perhaps. And I was so eager to get back to my life because at this point it had been maybe six months, you know, three months of prep for the surgery and being sober and, and kind of terrified in a way too, of what's to come and not knowing what my life's going to be like afterwards. And then I just got through two surgeries, you know, I beat it. I was feeling like I'm ready to go back to New York, get back to my life, just try to live life to the fullest, essentially, and started getting back into it. And one night I went out for a friend's birthday. I think it was a bring your own vodka Russian restaurant deep in Brooklyn. You, you know, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been to any of those, but holy shit, man, they're pretty wild. And I definitely had too much to drink that night. And, and I woke up the next morning didn't remember what happened. And I had tinnitus all of a sudden, like my head hurt a lot and my ears, my ear was ringing. And my friend told me that I fell trying to get back into the house, coming back. And then once you get tinnitus, it doesn't go away. So there I am nursing the worst hangover. I maybe had brain surgery six months ago or no, three, four months ago or something. It was still relatively fresh. And I definitely shouldn't have been doing what I was doing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the shame, the fucking like 
self-hatred and and like agony of knowing that I just did that to myself and that now it's here for the rest of my life was very hard to deal with. And that started leading to more like a deeper depression and going even harder because I was also in a relationship I wasn't happy in too. And then the hangovers and the and my physical feelings was getting so much worse too because because the tinnitus would get louder if I was hungover or if your body's depleted dehydrated. Sure. Or, yeah. You know, your anxiety gets worse and then the anxiety makes the tinnitus worse and everything is this vicious cycle too, where it's like almost, I felt like half of my body was disconnected from the other half too, because I still feel that sometimes it's just like, I have permanent, you know, damage in a way from not only the hearing loss, which threw my equilibrium off a little bit too, but also just the way my head feels too. And I was pushing through my damnedest trying to continue my life but my body kept telling me, no, like you can't be doing this. And then finally, as you know, when it rains, it pours to flash, flash forward a couple years, I think I had recently just gotten the job at Sony, which was a big deal too, going from an indie to, to Sony music. I got the job offer the same day that I found out my mom had cancer. So it was like, my new boss called me, offered me the job. Then my dad called me, I think an hour or so late. And it was actually at your office. I was at the Halloween party that I was going to go to. But as soon as I got there, my dad called. So then I just dipped you out. Dip. Yeah. And so I had to process those two things simultaneously, you know, just my mom's cancer and, and starting a new high pressure job that, that being hung over in is not the best scenario too. And then a couple months after that, maybe a month or two, my girlfriend of five years broke up with me too. And I was about to get shoulder surgery like a week later too, from having fallen off a bike before, after a Nine Snails concert, having a few too many as well. So that moment that she was breaking up with me, it clicked in my head. I was like, I'm done. I felt like I was at an actual crossroads right there at, at that moment. I was like, my mom has cancer, you know, term like stage four she's gonna pass you know my my girlfriend's breaking up with me and i'm about to get shoulder surgery too which was the least of my problems you know getting uh, a headache or something and just trying to deal with just all these changes in my life and i was like i need to make a change in my life as a result of this because i i know what the other route is because i've been down it for so many years now too which only leads to like injuries or, you know, mental problems or like, who knows what, what's next? Am I going to wait till my job is lost? Am I going to wait till I get hit by a train or something? Yeah. You know, that's the thing. Way. Like it almost feels like shit. You've had so many near misses. Like what, when does the luck run out? Mm -hmm. Exactly. I could go on and on about all the other injuries I had and things like that, but I won't right now. But this was finally the straw that broke the camel's back. And it was the best decision I, I ever made too. And I never looked back. I never even struggled with being like, oh, I need a drink right now or anything. I started seeing everything fall into place and started paying attention to my body, to my mind, to the signs that I think many of us all get in life and we decide what we want to do with them. And I know 100% that it was the right decision to make because when my mom was in hospice last year, which was in the heart of the pandemic, which was challenging enough 
to deal with where for months I couldn't even see her because we weren't sure about coronavirus and I wasn't going to take the risk to kill both of my parents, my sure. dad, who would all die being diabetic and just and having a lot of health issues was like, you know, I had to be stronger and tougher and more resilient than I ever had in my own life because having the brain tumor was hard for me, but having a loved one who's sick is a completely different experience. It made me feel like, oh, this is probably what my mom felt like when I've, all the things I've done too, when I've been sick too, because you feel like you have less control of the situation because it's somebody else. And it's so much easier, I think, for many of us to love someone else instead of ourselves too. Mm -hmm. And I did so much work leading up to that moment with myself and finally started trying to love myself and trying to heal myself and trying to live my life, like actually live my life and not live it in a disconnected way, in a way that was being drowned out by substances or just, just disconnection, really, was what it came about. And so I got super into sound baths, into meditation, yoga, nature, just like exercise, because anyone who's an addict is probably going to need something else to, to direct their attention to. Exactly. But I found, I read more books than I'd ever read in my life too, being sober, because I was like, oh, I got all this time on my hands. And I know that <laughs> all the work that I put into myself paid off in like exponentially when it came down to taking care of my mom at the end of her life too, because I was fully there, present every single moment. I was there for her. I was there for my family, my brother, myself, and, and they were too, but it was so much extra work, spiritual work, emotional work, work on myself that allowed me to do that. Because I know I wouldn't have been able to do all of that if I hadn't actually made a change in my life too. And, and it was a change that I didn't just make for myself. I made it for all the people who do love me in my life too. And to know that like th this last year, it's still raw. It's been eight, almost eight months since my mom passed, but to know that I can look back on that time as being a really beautiful time for us as a family. You know, my brother was able to come into the country for a few months and I was off work for a bit and we were just together and present. And it was just all about love. And if I had been trying to get through it by drinking or by disassociating, instead of confronting the pain, the challenge, the inevitable loss, my entire world being turned upside down head on, I don't think I would have experienced it in the same way where it was almost like I did so much grief work as it was happening before she passed too. work on myself and work in making her have the best end of life experience possible that would not have happened if, if I was doing what I had done my whole life, because I was like, I know where that leads. So let me try something different. And it opened up so many doors and, and has opened up and continues to open up doors of what I want to do in, in life moving forward too. Like I said, really getting into sound healing too. I did so much of that on my own, facing my demons, facing who I was, all the things I didn't like about myself and things that I knew I could change too. And when you're sitting in a room for three hours, listening to gongs and bowls and right. <laughs> some crazy, crazy instruments, your mind is going to connect because there's nothing else 
happening. A lot of the ones I did also involved breath work as well too. So it's almost a psychedelic experience in you go into this altered state of consciousness and you go so deep within that it's meant to be a healing experience. It's like a way that we're able to go so deep within ourselves and able to look at ourselves or look at the situations we create and have our entire lives in a way that I've never been able to experience through therapy, through like substances, through even conversation too, because so much I feel like of, of what we do as a society is external. You know, it's like, it's your job. It's the, the music you listen to. It's, right. it's the car you have, the house you have, your, your pet, how hot is your significant other? It's all things that are external but we don't focus enough on the internal, not just with each other, but especially with ourselves. And when most people have free time, they're gonna be like, I'm gonna watch a show on Netflix or you know, listen to music or maybe work out or healthy things. But when you're actually sitting with yourself and in your mind for that long, you're gonna find things about yourself that maybe won't be so pretty. Yeah, too. yeah, that's not always gonna be the most comfortable look in the world. No, absolutely. But it's a really powerful experience. And I've seen since then, like what I was saying earlier with just being open to receiving in a way or to getting these messages that, that the world is trying to give us. I've just had a lot of, a lot of experience that have really in four, or solidified that I am down the right path. And one quick story I'll tell is when my mom was in hospice, she got a message on her phone from the son of one of her best friend from college. Her, her best friend in college was from Thailand. And this was during the Vietnam War too, when you know Asian Americans were getting lots of discrimination similar to now. And my mom being a great role model always never worried about that. They were roommates, I think, and just became super close. And my mom ended up going to Thailand with her one time, which she always talked about. It was one of her favorite trips. And as kids, we used to go over to Sukanto was my mom's friend's name to her house and her family's house. It was in Virginia and uh, had a couple kids, including a son who was, who was our age and hadn't seen him in about 20 years. Sukanto had passed a few years ago and the son reached out to my mom because he had heard from his dad about her cancer. And he's a sound healer himself now too. And he's pretty well known in like plays festivals and has travels all over the place and I think he gave two chains a sound bath too for a Vice documentary, oh, wow. uh, which is quite cool. And he texted my mom and said, "Hey, listen, I, I'm in New York for the first time because he's been living in LA, and my dad told me what's what's happening or or what you're going through." And he's like, "I've been trying to find a purpose for why I'm out here because he was there, I guess, taking care of, or doing sound baths for rich people during the pandemic." And he's like, but, but I don't feel that that's why I'm here. And he said, would you be willing to have me come visit you and do some sound baths for you? And I, I picked up, my mom was at the point where she could barely like respond to text messages or I'd have to read them to her. And I read it and I was blown away because first of all, it was in her junk folder, which I didn't even know was a thing on cell phones. And but neither did I. Yeah, if, if I hadn't picked up the phone at that moment and, and looked at it, I wouldn't have ever found it. And it might've been lost in oblivion, you know? And then I saw it and I had taken my mom to a, not a full like three hour long sound bath, but a, a 45 minute one in New York at this place that I was going to. 
And she really liked it too. She liked the experience. She was very open-minded with everything. So she'd be like, yeah, let me try it. Sounds great. So when I told her that this guy had offered to come down and do this, she was like, yeah, that sounds amazing. Let's do it. So I told him to come down. And as he was on his way, I woke up that morning and my brother was back in Norway at this point. And I went downstairs and, and she was like slumped over in the bed. And every morning I'd wake up super early and give her pills and check on her and all that stuff. And this was the first time I didn't do that, that I like slept in. So it was like 11 o'clock and then I find her and she's slumped over and I knew something was wrong. I wasn't quite sure what, but when someone's in hospice, you also can't call 911. You have to call the hospice nurse first. And mind you too, being the pandemic, everyone's got to show up in masks. There's all this extra protocol too. It's not easy dealing with this. So I called the nurse and they were like, it sounds like she's has an opiate overdose right now. She's on fentanyl. They put you on morphine. We had morphine, but she hadn't started taking it yet. And then turns out she had a morphine overdose. She drank a bottle of morphine thinking it was water because when you're in that state and end of life, you can make errors like that too. She drank like enough to kill like an elephant or something, but because of the opiate tolerance, fortunately that was not, she didn't she survived right yeah so as this is happening the guy's on his way down from new york who i haven't seen in 20 years my dad hasn't seen in 20 years either and he's texting me like hey i'm almost there and i and i i was like dude like my mom just overdosed on morphine they just sent her to the hospital i can't go they're not letting anybody go because of the pandemic i was like i don't know if you want to turn around things are kind of hectic right now but if you want to come i know you're almost here so it's up to you He's like, I'll be there. I'll see you soon. So while I'm, I'm tell, calling my brother in Norway, telling him what's happening and whatnot, and uh, trying to get a hold of the hospital to know what's going on because I can't get a hold of anybody. No one's calling me back. And again, you can't go visit too. So it was like probably one of the most stressful <laughs> days. Sure. Was, even though when she, when they put her in the stretcher, just something clicked in me too, where I, I just knew it wasn't her time yet. Like I just knew that today wasn't the day and this wasn't the end. And I don't know why I knew it, but I, I knew it. Sometimes you just get those feelings. And, and again, it goes back to what I was saying where I'm trying, like trusting my intuition, trusting my gut. I found, especially through this whole process with my mom, that it was right probably 9.5, perhaps 10 out of 10 times too. So this was, that's what it told me. And I said, okay, so now let's move on and, and let's get to the point where we can bring her home. And then the guy was there talking to me and my dad. It actually felt really great having him there because it was like something to distract us from the reality of the situation. And he was like, you know, I'm here as long as you guys need me too. I'm here to give your mom this gift. And, and that's what I'm here for. So don't worry about, cause I was worrying like, I, do you need, you know, are you comfortable? Like blah, blah, blah. And she ended up coming back later that night, or I had to pick her up, which was great. And then the next day we did a sound bath and he ended up staying for like three days, I think three, three nights, four days or something and gave us three sound baths. And my dad had never done it before. And my dad's not into that kind of stuff at all, but he was, he heard myself and the guy talking about it too. And he was intrigued and he participated. And then 
we set up the whole room with candles, with, with just like a relaxing, beautiful atmosphere. And my mom was in her bed and then I laid next to her and my dad was in the other room. And this guy, he, he has like 12 crystal, giant crystal bowls playing them in our living room. And we were so exhausted physically and emotionally that it was just the most serene, calming experience. I can't think of anything better that, that could have helped us at that time. And it was just so powerful because it was coming from a place of, of love, love from a person who knew my mom and who knew how close my mom was to his mom, who he had lost recently. And I think he was channeling that as well through his performance and through his experience. And then the next day he did one for just me and my mom. And when I was meditating on that one, I saw angels like, or what could be considered angels hovering over my mom. And this was during the crescendo because it, when you're doing a sound bath, it gets very loud, not but not loud like amplifier loud. It's more like all encompassing 360 degrees surrounding you loud. You feel it in your bones. You feel it in your flesh. You feel it in your soul too. You just feel it everywhere. And for this moment, again, after what we've just been through, and now here it is in the daytime as opposed to nighttime, I'm just thinking about everything that's right in front of me. My, my eyes are closed, but my mom's right in front of me. And then our friend is, is performing on the floor and it reached this huge crescendo and I just like lost it. It was just tears streaming down my face. I felt like my whole body was crying too. And as I was doing that, you know, he's still keeping it going too, because he's like, I don't want to say read in the room, but in a way he's emotionally tied to what's- Yeah, he's clued what, into the vibe of the room, right. Exactly. And, uh, and then at that moment, I saw these figures like surround her and like, and put their hands on her and they were floating, like, you know, not super vi vivid, like I'm watching a TV, but I saw these figures and there were definitely some sort of angel or not tied to a specific religion. And they surrounded her and they told me not out loud, but just like telepathically, <laughs> I would say, again, it's still not her time yet. But when it is, which is soon, we're here to take her home, essentially. And then right after that, all of a sudden, it was like the music completely calmed down. The whole washing sound, the massive volume dissipated. And it was just a bell, a ding. And I heard it behind me, like a whisper in my ear, uh, even though he was in front of me too. But you know, the way the sound can travel or the way you can experience it too, it felt like a whisper of again, the angels and even my mom being like, we're always going to be right here, right, right by you as a part of you too. And it was like, whoo, holy shit. I was like, I can't believe I just experienced that. And it just completely reinforced the fact that if I hadn't gone down that path of making these changes in my life and getting into spiritual side and, and doing all this important work on myself, I wouldn't have gotten into sound baths. I wouldn't have gotten into these types of experiences where I became open to receiving them. If you go into it skeptical, being like, yeah, this is dumb. I'm just going to sit here and like, listen to some right, guy. Roll my eyes and yeah, yeah, yeah. But instead I took it as like, okay, this, I can't think of a better experience at the end of my mom's life to heal me and my family and to help her pass into the next realm. 
too. And the fact that it came from such a place of love too. And then it came so randomly too from this text message that we may have missed. Missed right too. in your junk folder. Absolutely. I was like, man, this is this the universe is another- was looking out for you. Yeah. <laughs> the universe exactly. was looking out for you, bro. <laughs> for exactly. real. And you know, I think that that's there's there are many moments like that you know obviously i don't not going to get into them all but there were many really powerful moments like that i read that as not just what i explained to you but also like i got to keep digging in here too i got to keep going and i want to share this with others the same way you're sharing these conversations with others you know and we've talked about how amazing i love i love what you're doing i love Thank that you. you're that you're you've created this platform and that you're trying to help other people and you are helping other people too. And I'm like, that's what I need to do. And it's just, what is my, you know, modus operandi. And this is one that I feel a very strong connection to. It healed me from, you know, drinking and, and, and a lot of like depression and, you know, not fully of course, but it, it helped me on that path. And then it helped me through the loss of the closest person in my life too. And I've, I've started teaching myself how to do it and it's something I want to explore a lot more. And then I, I want to just sh- try to share that with others, whether it's right now, it's more telling about my experiences and or going with people, taking them with me to, to an experience too, sure. where, Hey, this is actually something that, you know, can really be life-changing and is so different from other forms of wellness or mindfulness or medicine in a way too. And, and the fact that it can apply both within your own experience, but then also something like what happened with my mom, I had never experienced anything like that before because it had always been such an internal experience if you're open to the receiving of it. Because I'm sure someone else could have sat right next to me and not had the same experience, but it's sure. about what you make of it, which is just a good metaphor for life too. I agree with you a hundred percent. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's some deep shit, Bob. I, I, I felt that monologue really hard. Like that had me thinking about some of my own stuff. So I, I'm not even sure what to say <laughs> from here. I mean, thanks for that. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I, dude, I would love to go with, with you to one too. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I've done a sound bath once before, but uh, I would totally, you know, I'm always looking for ways to kind of center myself. Yeah, um, Absolutely. So, and I think ritual is so important too. You know, that's something that that I've learned a lot, and and that I think we are missing in our lives in a way. And is like just not being able to gather in spaces. But if you look at a thing like a concert and what people who are so into music were drawn to, is that ritualistic? It's a spiritual gathering. experience. Yes, indeed, mm-hmm. absolutely, absolutely. It's 100%. it's church for a lot of people. Yes. Absolutely. And, you know, and I feel like when I look back in my life and like why I've always been drawn to music, I'm like, it makes sense to where I'm at now too, where now I'm just discovering a whole nother style of sound too. It's maybe like somewhere between it's, it's music, but it's also, it's, it's so spiritual too. And it's, I I really like instrumental music a lot now because I think it, it can allow you to go dive deeper in a way or, or just interpret in your own too, where sometimes lyrics or vocals, you know, are, are telling the story for you. Sure. And, and when something's instrumental, same with like a sound bath, it's just you and your mind in control 
And I think going from the, the rituals as a kid of going to concerts and experiencing that, that ecstasy, that emotional release, that connection with the artist, with the, the crowd, with the people that I'm with myself has led to what I now want to explore even further, which is like an even, I don't want to say more profound, but it's, it's a deeper experience. It's a deeper internal experience than what I've experienced through music, through traditional music. But at the same time, I think if you, I've also gotten into like deep listening recently, where I just sit there either with headphones or with a record and just meditate and listen to it and see where it takes me, you know? And, and that's a really powerful experience. It's just about connection too, right? That just goes back to connection. Yeah, it is. I wish I did that more. That's something I used to do a lot when I was younger. I just, Mm -hmm. you know, it's interesting. We get so caught up in, in multitasking. There were times when I was a teenager, I would put on a record and just stand or sit and listen, not do anything else. And me too. Yeah. I want to get back to that. I I keep telling myself that I want to do it. I need to just go ahead and fucking do it, but I want to do it. You should, man. And and you know what? We can have fun with it too, because I do it with some other friends too, where it's like, yo, let's all listen to this record tonight or this week, something. Make it a a weekly thing too. I mean, you know, being realistic with it. And, you know, if you've got it on vinyl too, it's it's like experience it. Just close your eyes. And immerse yourself. Yeah, immerse. Get that connection too. That's just what we need more of too. We just need more connection with ourselves and the world and and each other this conversation gave me a lot of feelings initially and every time i edit and re-listen to it it makes me feel the same things i was feeling before uh the two things that i get most out of this with bob are a just the need to find some kind of spiritual center i'm not quite sure what that is and uh you know some people search for that forever but I definitely feel the need to have some kind of of spiritual center in my life that is not related to organized religion because I am not too crazy about organized religion as a general rule. Uh, The other thing is that as Bob was talking about his mom and his mom being ill and ultimately passing away, I thought about my own grandmother who raised me and who passed away a little under two years ago and how I wish I was there for her a little bit more. Now, geographically, we were in pretty different places and... The, the relationship between a mom and a son and a grandmother and a grandson is very different. And I think our relationship was a lot more fraught than Bob's and his mom's was. But I still can't help but feel a little bit of guilt over the fact that I did not see her as much as I intended to or wanted to. And that there's a lot that we did not discuss uh, while she was ill. So um, thank you, Bob, for really kind of giving me food for thought as a result of this conversation. I'm grateful to have you as a friend, and I'm grateful that you were so honest and open in this conversation. If you folks want to follow Bob on social media, which he doesn't use incredibly often, you can find him on Instagram at purplerain666, which is probably the most Bob Lugo Instagram name in history. Once again, that is purplerain666. And uh, thank you, Bob. I really, really appreciated the conversation that we've had. Thanks again for listening to this episode. We really hope that you stick around and listen to future episodes or past episodes if you feel so inclined. You can obviously listen to Detoxicity on the podcast platform of your choosing. And if you want to get in touch with me, please hit me up on Instagram, DetoxPodGuy, 
Twitter, Tis Mike Joseph, or you can email me at detoxpod at gmail.com. Always willing to hear constructive criticism, thoughts, ideas, real, realizations. And if you yourself would like to be a guest on the show or you know somebody who would make a good guest, I will take recommendations from now until the end of time. So please feel free to reach out to me. I want to thank a couple of people who've been very important to this show. Uh, Calvin Williams composed the music that you hear at the beginning and end of every episode. Jacob Block composed the logo or created the logo for the show. And I want to give a special shout out to Andrew Grossman and Jeff Giles for providing inspiration for me to come up with this idea and bring it to fruition. Once again, thank you all for listening. I really, really appreciate it and take care of yourselves. Peace.